0: A believing submission and a submissive faith in Christ we must have or perish. But sitting at Jesus' feet implies also that having submitted and believed, we now desire to be His disciples. Discipleship is too often forgotten, it is as needful as faith. A man cannot be saved unless. He becomes a learner in the school of Christ and learner, too, in a practical sense, being willing to practice what he learns. Only he who does the Master's will knows his doctrine. The believer's position is that of a pupil, and the Lord Jesus is his teacher. Except we be converted and become as little children, we can in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Sitting at the feet of Jesus indicates the childlike spirit of true discipleship, and this is the one thing needful. There is no salvation apart from it. It meant also service, for though Mary was not apparently engaged in waiting upon Christ as Martha was, yet she was in very truth ministering unto him in a deeper and truer sense. No one gives greater joy to a public speaker than an attentive listener. No one serves a teacher better than he who has an apt and attentive scholar. The first duty indeed of the student to the tutor is that he be cheerful in accepting and diligent in retaining what is taught. In this sense, Mary was really waiting upon Christ in one of his loftiest capacities, namely that of a teacher and prophet in the midst of Israel. In that same spirit, Had the Master only intimated it, she would have risen to wash his feet or anoint his head or wait at table, as Martha did. But she would, while she was performing these active duties, have continued spiritually in her first posture. She could not, of course, have continued literally sitting at the feet of the Savior, but her heart would have remained In the condition which that posture indicates, she was in the fittest position for service, for she waited to hear what her Lord would have her to do. We must all be servants too. As we have been servants of unrighteousness, we must by grace submit ourselves unto the rules of Jesus and become servants of righteousness, or else we miss the one thing that is indispensable for the entrance into heaven. Sitting at the feet of Jesus also signifies love. She would not have been sitting there at ease and happy in mind if she had not loved him. There was a charm in the very tone of his words to her. She knew how he had loved her, and therefore each syllable was music to her soul. She looked up again and again, I doubt not, into that dear face and often caught the meaning of the words more readily as she read his countenance, marked his eyes, oft times suffused with tears and ever bright with holy sympathy. Her love to his person made her a willing learner and we must be the same. We must not learn of Christ like unwilling truant boys who go to school and must needs have learning flogged into them. We must be eager to learn. We must open our mouth wide that He may fill it like the thirsty earth when it needs the shower. Our soul must break for the longing it hath towards His commandments at all times. We must rejoice in His statutes more than gold, yea, than much fine gold. When we are moved by this Spirit, we have found the one thing needful. Having laid before you the meaning of the text, that to sit at Jesus' feet is the one thing necessary, for a literal translation of the text would be, Of one thing there is a necessity. Let us take the text as it stands and notice in it four things. The first is a word of consideration. The disjunctive conjunction but. The Savior bids us to make a pause. He says, but one thing is needful. Then there comes a word of necessity one thing is needful. Thirdly, a word of concentration. One thing is needful. And then a word of immediateness. One thing is needful, needful now, at once. Part 1. To begin then, here is a word of consideration which, as I have already said, is interjected into the middle of our Lord's brief word to Martha. Martha is very busy, she is rather quick-tempered also, and she speaks to the Savior somewhat shortly, and the Master says, Martha, Martha, very tenderly, kindly, gently, with only the slightest tinge of rebuke in his tone, Martha, Martha. Thou art careful and troubled about many things, but but wait a while and hear. That wise and warning but may be very useful to many here. You are engaged today in business, very diligent you are in it. You throw your whole energy into your trading as you must. If you would succeed. You rise up early and you sit up late. Shall I say a word that should discourage your industry? I will not. But but is there nothing else? Is this life all? Is money making everything? Is wealth worth gaining merely for the sake of having it said he died worth 50,000 pounds? Is it so? Perhaps you are a very hard-working man. You have very little rest during the week, and in order to bring up your family comfortably, you strain every nerve. You live as you should economically, And you work diligently. From morning to night, the thought of you is, How shall I fill these many little mouths? How shall I bring them up properly? How shall I, as a working man, pay my way? Very right. I wish all working men would be equally thoughtful and economical, and that there were Fewer of those foolish spendthrifts who waste their substance when they have it, and who the moment there is a frost, or they are out of employ, become paupers loafing upon the charity of others. I commend your industry, but but at the same time, is that all? Were you made... Only to be a machine for digging holes, laying bricks, or cutting out pieces of wood? Were you created only to stand at a counter and measure or weigh out goods? Do you think your God made you for that, and that only? Is this the chief end of man? To earn so many shillings a week and try to make ends meet therewith? As a man with a soul, capable of thought and judgment, and not a mere animal like a dog, nor a machine like a steam engine, can you stand up and look at yourself and say, I believe I am perfectly fulfilling my destiny. I beg this morning to interject that quiet butt right into the middle of your busy life and ask from you space for consideration, a pause for the voice of wisdom that a hearing may be granted her. Business? Labor? Yes, but there is a higher bread to be earned, and there is a higher life to be considered. Hence the Lord puts it, Labor not for the meat that perisheth, that is to say, not for that first and foremost, but for that which endureth unto everlasting life. John six twenty seven. God hath made man that he may glorify him, and whatever else man accomplishes, if he attains not to this end, his life is a disastrous failure. Now I have spoken thus to the busy, But I might speak, and I should, have certainly as good a claim to do so to those who are lovers of pleasure. They are not cumbered with much serving, rather they laugh at those who cumber themselves about anything. They are as merry as the birds, their life is as the flight of a butterfly which lightly floats from flower to flower. Now thou gay young man, what doth Solomon say to thee? Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart, and in the sight of thine eyes. But there comes in a pause, and the cool hand of wisdom is laid upon the hot brow of folly, and the youth is asked to think a while. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment? Ecclesiastes 11.9 It cannot be that an immoral spirit was made for frivolities. O pause a while, thou careless, godless one, and hear the voice that saith unto thee, But... There is something more than the fool's laugh. All things are not a comedy. Death is serious, and heaven, and hell. And should not life be? Stop. Stop and let this but sound in thine ears. I take liberty, moreover, to address the same word to religious people who, perhaps, need it as much as others. They will, of course, agree with anything I can say about the mere worldling or the profligate, but will they listen to me when I say to them, you are very diligent in your religion, you are attentive to all its outward rites and ceremonies, you believe the articles of your church, but but do you know that All this is nothing unless you sit at Jesus' feet. We may do what the church tells us and never do what Christ tells us, for these may be different things. And the church is not our Savior, but Christ. We may believe what a certain creed tells us, but not believe what Jesus teaches. Aye, and we may believe even what the Bible itself teaches to us or think we believe it, but if our heart has never made submission to the teacher himself so as to sit at his feet and receive the truth obediently from him, our religion is altogether vain. Yes, and let me say, even to those of you who can honestly declare that Christ is your sole confidence it is possible for you to forget the necessity of sitting at His feet. You, dear brethren, are looking to His precious blood alone for your salvation, and His name is sweet to you, and you desire in all things to be conformed to His will. So far it is well with you, for in this you have a measure of sitting at His feet. But so had Martha. Martha. She loved her Lord, knew His Word, and was a saved soul. You have been very busy this week and have been drifting from your moorings. You have not lived with your Lord in conscious fellowship. You have been full of care and empty prayer. You have not committed your sorrows to your loving friend. You have blundered on in duty without asking His guidance or assistance. You have not maintained in your Christian service the communion of your Spirit with the well-beloved. And if such has been the case, let me say but to you and ask you, as you sit here this morning, to make a little stop in your Sunday school teaching or your street preaching or whatever else, It is that you are so laudably engaged in and say to yourself, To me as a worker, the one thing needful is to keep near my Lord, and I must not so suffer the watering of others to occupy me as to neglect my own heart, lest I should have to say, Woe is me! They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard have I not kept. Part 2. Our text speaks of necessity. One thing is a necessity. If this be proved, it overrides all other considerations. We are nearly right when we say proverbially, necessity has no law. Necessity, like hunger, breaks through stone walls. The text claims for sitting at Jesus' feet, the first and only necessity. Now I see all around me a crowd of things alluring. Pleasure calls to me, I hear her serene song, but I reply, I cannot regard thee, for necessity presses upon me to hearken to another voice. Philosophy and learning charm me, Fain would I yield my heart to them. But while I am yet unsaved, the one thing needful demands my first care, and wisdom bids me give it. Not that we love human learning less, but eternal wisdom more. Pearls, yes. Emeralds, yes. But bread, in God's name, bread at once when I am starving in the desert. If you are wise, you will evermore prefer the necessity to the dazzling. About us are a thousand things entangling. This world is very much like the pools we have heard of in India, in which grows a long grass of so clinging a character, that if a man once falls into the water, It is almost certain to be his death, for only with the utmost difficulty could he be rescued from the meshes of the deadly weedy net which immediately wraps itself around him. This world is even thus entangling. All the efforts of grace are needed to preserve men from being ensnared with the deceitfulness of riches and the cares of this life. The ledger demands you, the shop requires you, the warehouse bell rings for you, the theater invites you. You must live, you say, and you must have a little enjoyment, and consequently you give your heart to the world. These things, I say, are very entangling, but we must be disentangled from them. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? O sirs, for the one thing needful, all entangling things must be given up. You must lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset you, if by any means the one thing needful may be yours. There are some things very puzzling, and some people have a strange delight in being bewildered. It is astonishing the many letters I receive and interviews I am asked to give in order to adjust in people's minds the doctrine of predestination and the fact of free agency. And equally remarkable is the way in which young people, and old people too, will pick out extremely difficult texts, perhaps relating to the Second Advent or to the Battle of Armageddon, and they must needs have these opened up to them before they will believe the gospel. I think it utterly useless to begin upon such things with those who are unsaved. One thing is needful, sir, And that is by no means a puzzling matter. It is plainly this, that thou submit thyself to Jesus Christ and sit at his feet. Now why is it that sitting at Jesus' feet is a necessity? It is so because it is needful for us to have our sins forgiven. But Jesus will never forgive the unhumbled rebel. If he will not take Jesus to be a master, the sinner cannot have him to be a savior. As long as we rebel against him, we cannot be saved by him. Submission by repentance and faith we must have, or our transgressions will remain upon us to our everlasting ruin. It is necessary because we must have our inbred sins overcome, but none can stay corruption in a man but Christ, who has come to destroy the works of the devil and to save his people from their sins. Jesus, the seed of the woman, is the only power that can crush the serpent's head. Only at the feet of Jesus can the divine power be gained which works in us holiness and sanctifies us practically. Therefore, as you must be purified or you cannot enter heaven, you must come to Jesus' feet. In order to enter heaven, it is necessary that our nature should become like the nature of Christ. This earth is for those who bear the image of the first Adam, but the new heaven and the new earth are for those who bear the image of the second Adam. We must by some means acquire the nature of the heavenly Adam, and this must be wrought in us by regeneration and developed by acquaintance with Him. By sitting at His feet and beholding Him, we become changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. If we reject the Lord Jesus as our trust, teacher and exemplar, we have no new life and shall never be admitted within the holy gates where those alone dwell who are fashioned after His likeness. Woe! Woe! Woe to the godless, Christless Spirit that passeth across the river of death without a hope. Woe, woe, woe eternally to the soul that will not sit at the feet of Jesus. He shall be trodden beneath his feet in his anger and crushed in his hot displeasure. God grant that may never be our portion to sit at Jesus' feet Is the one thing needful then? And brethren, let me just say and leave this point. It is needful to every one of you. It is not some of you who must be there, but all. The wisest must become fools to learn of him, or fools they are. The most educated and cultured mind must submit to this further culture, Or else it is nothing but a barren waste in his sight. One thing is a necessity to you all. High or low, rich or poor, you must sit at Jesus' feet. Some things in this world are necessary after a measure. But this is necessary without measure. Infinitely needful is it that you sit at Jesus' feet. Needful now. Needful in life, needful in life for peace, in death, for rest, and in eternity for bliss. This is needful always. In the highest and most emphatic sense, one thing is needful. Completed in the October studies. Study number five. Giving place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. Ephesians 4.27 The verse just quoted sets before us an exhortation which every Christian needs to take seriously to heart. Many believers give place to the devil unconsciously because they are ignorant of his devices. But this ought not to be the Scriptures clearly expose them, but unless we diligently study the Word, we shall neither be forewarned nor forearmed. In order to fight successfully against the subtle and powerful enemy, it is of first importance to be well informed of the tactics he employs and the methods he follows. The great enemy of our souls Hides himself behind many unsuspected forms. His chief weapon is deception. The devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world (Revelations 12:9). Only as the Holy Spirit gives us to see light from the light of the Word, are we able to discern and detect Satan's many disguises. Now, there is a real difference between giving place to the devil and being overcome by him. Yet there is a close connection between the two. It is the former which is the occasion of the latter. Let us give a simple illustration of this. If I leave my windows unlatched and my doors unlocked, then am I not inviting burglars to enter and rob me? Of course I am. In like manner, if I fail to avail myself of the safeguards which God's word sets before me, if I am not careful and watchful against the devil's approaches, I am open to his assaults. Prevention is better than cure. It is because we fail to use our God-given preventatives that we are so often tripped up by Satan. Let us first name seven ways in which we fail to keep the windows and doors of our souls securely locked against the great thief. John 10.10 First, we give place to the devil when we fail to really believe God's warning. His word plainly tells us that our adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, Walketh about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5 8. Ah, but it is one thing to be acquainted with the letter of that verse, but it is quite another to appropriate it and act as though we felt we were in real danger from him. Oh, how we need to beg the Holy Spirit to write this word upon our hearts. To bring it home in power to our remembrance each day. To cause us to be cautious and vigilant, knowing that Satan is ever seeking our destruction. God does not preserve careless and heedless souls. Second, we give place to the devil when we are not on our prayerful guard. Let us call to mind those words of our lords. Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Matthew twenty six forty one, And let us recall Peter's sad failure to heed that admonition. How differently he had acted in the high priest's palace if instead of sleeping in the garden he had spent his time in earnest prayer seeking grace to fortify him against the approaching temptation. Alas, how often we have repeated Peter's offense. Oh, my hearer, make no mistake upon this point. To lapse into a careless and prayerless state of soul renders us easy victims to Satan's deceptions. Third, we give place to the devil when we fail to put on the whole armor of God. Ephesians 6.11 That armor is not to be talked about but used. It is no mock warfare we are called to engage in. The fight is intensely real and the saving or the losing of our very souls is at issue. That armor is provided that we may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. But if we do not gird it upon us, then we have no protection and our very vitals are exposed to his fiery darts. May it please the Lord to deeply impress upon writer and hearer the absolute necessity of our putting on the seven pieces of armor which divine grace has provided for us. Fourth, we give place to the devil when we fail to confess every known sin. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. Proverbs 28.13 Unconfessed sins clog and choke the channel of blessing between our souls and God. Isaiah fifty-nine two. Not only so, but our unconfessed sins leaves the door wide open for Satan to repeat his attacks upon us at the same point. The evil root must be judged before God if its bearing of evil fruit is to cease. Nothing is more necessary if we are to have power against our adversary than for us to keep short accounts with God, to daily own before Him every conscious failure and fall. Fifth, we give place to the devil when we fail to fully trust to God The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Or set aloft, Proverbs 18.10. That is, raised above the place where Satan can successfully assail us. While I am completely dependent upon the mighty God, drawing my strength from Him, the devil cannot harm me. It is when I give way to doubting that the enemy finds the opening which he seeks. As soon as my heart begins calling into question God's goodness, it is easy for Satan to fill me with despondency. And a despairing heart is just as wrong as having unclean hands. Sixth, we give place to the devil when we shrink from persecution bearing Christ's reproach hebrews 13:13 13, 13, is inseparable from a faithful going forth unto him outside the camp suffering affliction with the people of god is set over against enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season hebrews 11:25 and such suffering is to be viewed as a holy privilege and high honor and not as something to be shunned and ashamed of, for it brings us into fellowship with the sufferings of Christ, Philippians 3.10. But when these sufferings are looked at by the eye of sense and the heart sinks, Satan soon gains an advantage and tempts to compromise. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. There are spiritual prisons as well as material ones that ye may be tried. Revelation 2.10 Seventh, we give place to the devil when we relax spiritually. Oh, how much we need to heed that word Watch ye stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. 1 Corinthians 16.13 If we become slack and careless, if we fail to gird up the loins of our minds, 1 Peter 1.13 And keep not our hearts with all diligence, Proverbs 4.23 We shall soon be found giving place to the devil. Has the hearer noted what preceded David's fearful fall? It was at the time when kings go forth to battle. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Second Samuel 11.1 1. Hence, in the next verse, we find him idling, lazing, and then he fell. These are some of the more negative ways of giving place to the devil, namely, by failing to be armed against him. Let us now mention some of the more positive ways through which he gains an advantage over us. First, we give place to the devil when we listen to his evil suggestions. We do not begin by doing as he wants us, nor even by accepting his whisperings. It is the paying attention to what he says which is the root from which obeying him springs. This is seen clearly in the case of Eve. She parlayed with him before she took of the forbidden fruit. Contrast the Lord Jesus, who promptly rejected his evil suggestions by a verse from the word of God. Second, we give place to the devil the moment we begin to compromise. Solemnly is this illustrated in the case of Ananias and Sapphira. Of them we are told that they sold a possession and kept back part of the price. The remainder was laid at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit, and to keep back part. Acts 5, 1-3 What a solemn voice this has for each of us. Do we realize that it was Satan who was filling our hearts when we only half consecrated ourselves to the Lord? When we yielded him only a partial obedience? When we used on ourselves a portion of his tithe? when we refuse to thoroughly go forth unto him outside the camp. What is it that we are keeping back a part of? Third, we give place to the devil when we become self-sufficient and independent of God. It was being lifted up with pride which brought about the fall of the devil himself. First Timothy 3.6 Pride is a subtle thing, for we are largely unconscious of its presence. Nevertheless, it can be easily detected if we take the trouble to examine our motives and trace our actions back to their source. Pride is self-sufficiency. We are controlled by pride whenever we ask not wisdom and strength from God. We are moved by pride when we trust to common sense and lean unto our own understandings. Contrarywise, the humble man is he who seeks help from the Lord for everything. Fourth, we give place to the devil when we put self's interests before the Lord's glory. This was exemplified by the Gadarenes, Christ had come into their midst and graciously delivered a demon-possessed man. The demons then obtained his permission to enter a herd of swine, which rushed into the sea and were destroyed. How awful the sequel! And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. Mark 5.17 The demands of the Holy One were too strict for their liking. He interfered with their money making. They preferred their swine to the Savior. Does this shock you, dear hearer? Then ask God to reveal to you if there is anything which you are preferring by your actions above the honor and glory of His blessed Son. Fifth, we give place to the devil when we seek the company of and are friendly with his children. Satan knows full well that evil communications corrupt good manners. Therefore is he untiring in his efforts to induce God's children to take upon them an unequal yoke and become intimate with the ungodly. For this reason does God command us, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. Ephesians 5.11 Disobedience to this inevitably leads to our being ensnared by the great enemy. Sixth, we give place to the devil when we knowingly enter his territory. God has expressly commanded us, enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it, and pass away. Proverbs 4:14 and 15 If we disregard this divine prohibition, then we deliberately expose ourselves to Satan's temptations and cannot count upon God delivering us from the same. A solemn example of one who trespassed on the devil's ground is Lot. By settling down in Sodom, he deliberately courted the fearful disaster which overtook his family. Seventh, we give place to the devil when we allow him to use us to do his work. As a general rule, the devil works through human instruments, and happy is he when he can move a Christian to perform his bidding. It is a solemn consideration that every child of God is controlled hour by hour, either by the Holy Spirit or the evil spirit. Satan is using us to further his evil ends when he causes us to set an unChrist-like example before the ungodly, encouraging them in their sins. He uses the Christian when he can get him to sow the seeds of discord among brethren. And how often has he used a Christian to undermine the influence of a servant of God by speaking evil about him to others? Let us now point out some of the devil's tactics. Number 1. He aims to inject doubts into our minds. This is seen in the method which he employed with Eve. He endeavors to raise questionings in our hearts. Particularly, is this true in prayer while we are waiting for God to fulfill the promises which we have pleaded? Hence the Savior said, If ye have faith and doubt not. Matthew 21.21 Number two. He aims to discredit God in our esteem. This is seen in his attack upon Job. It was the devil who moved his wife to bid him curse God and die. With this before us, there is no excuse for any Christian being ignorant of his devices. When trials come upon us, Satan tempts unto hard thoughts against God. Seeking to make us believe that he is unkind and unjust in his dealings number three he aims to puff us up with pride this is seen in the temptation he presented to David to number the people first chronicles 21 one much watchfulness and prayer is needed to guard against this if he cannot make us Conceited over our natural endowments and possessions, He will seek to make us proud of our devotedness and obedience to God, our liberality and kindness to others, and even of our humility. The safeguard against this is to remind ourselves constantly that we have nothing but what we have ourselves first received of God. 1 Corinthians 4.7 4. He aims to destroy full dependency upon God. This is seen in his first temptation of Christ in Matthew 4. The Son of God had taken upon himself the form of a servant, and the devil said, Command that these stones be made bread. Christ was hungered, and Satan says, Trust God no longer. Take things into your own hands. He tempts us to act independently. He seeks to prevent our earnestly seeking from God divine guidance,
1: wisdom, strength, and blessing. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books.